Um, I'll introduce Ron in a minute, but Susie, Susie is amazing. His wife, Susie, she's over here. She's ever, ever so shy. She, uh, the devil tried to take her out once with sickness. Uh, and um, I think he's still on life support because of that, isn't he? <laughs> Don't take Susie on. <laughs> she, she reminds me. She just walks in this authority, this gentle authority of um, Basilius Schlenk, uh, a, um, a Lutheran nun, and, and the, the ladies that she used to minister with. Uh, they would they would come across demons in people as they're praying, and they'd just go shoo, 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 and they'd be gone. <laughs> and she kind of walks in that kind of authority. Amazing and wonderful person. Get to know her. And her husband is a shy and retiring type. <laughs> um, he's uh, he's got all the credentials. The doctor and bishop and all that stuff, and it's all legit, um, earned uh, the hard way. <laughs> uh, and, but but he, is a, he, he carries the spirit of Jesus in such a lovely way that it just kind of undoes me. He's been a friend to us uh, in, in a hard season, and I really appreciate that. When he was here last time, it was in... 2019, I think, he, he spoke a word about Joseph, and it, it was the best word I've heard about Joseph. It's, it's an excellent, I've, I've listened to it three times since, excellent uh, exposition. <laughs> anyway, um, yeah, why don't, why don't you just come up? This is Bishop Ron Kuykendall. I turned it on. There's only one button, so I think sometimes these things get different. Oh, you got the red light too bad. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. It's going to blow up in 10 seconds, yes. Oh. Um, my wife's going to kill me. Uh-oh. Can I watch? Yeah. Because uh, i got to say, this is being recorded, correct? Yes. Okay, good. Um, so... Um, Sorry, Did you know, I need large print, and the large print Bibles, not only are they humongous to carry, you know, uh, but I can't get them large enough. But on my iPad, you know, I can take it and make it as large as I want. <laughs> so I'm not trying to be tech savvy. It's literally self-defense in terms of uh, seeing things and uh, all that. Now, Lord, what a privilege it is to be here with the people of your chosen possession, Lord. These are your precious servants. And Lord, Susan, I couldn't be honored enough to be any place else, Lord, than this place and to have these friends. So Lord, as humbly as we know how, we ask you to come even more. You're clearly here so powerfully and beautifully, Lord. But we ask in some measure, some way, that in this time, uh, that your presence, your love, uh, your comfort, your healing uh, would be poured out. Yeah. And uh, Lord, we'd be so thankful. Yes, Lord. And we thank you in advance. In Jesus' wonderful name, amen. amen. Okay. So, um, I've got a sermon. But I've got two quick other things I've got to say. So, by the way, uh, is it Amanda and Elizabeth, I don't think I know Elizabeth. Um, I, you can't know how special that is. I know you guys have had great music for a long time. And I think like anything, you, you get used to it. Um, we have a great musician, but we don't have... Actually, this is recording, be careful. But we, I mean, listen... Um, just the talent, of course. That's big time. They could be anywhere. Uh, that's, I mean, incredible. But the depth has increased. Um, I don't know how you say authority in singing, but there's, 
something, uh, I mean, I thought it was fantastic in the past, I'll be honest with you, because we're not used to that in terms of like that, but I can tell you, wow, um, just to remind you, because you're used to it, but man, there is a depth in the worship that is uh, different uh, even than in the past. And I would say this place is really strong in that. So that's surprising to me. Um, pain, suffering does that, but nonetheless, um, it's amazing. And uh, it was uh, uh, really special. And uh, so uh, the second thing I want to just quickly say, I was actually four, three before the sermon. Second thing is I want to remind you the metrics of a church. We have a very small church. Um, we, uh, you know, 26 years. Uh, I don't know how long you've been here. I think longer. 30. 30. 30. All right. And, uh, you know, we're a healing church. We're kind of like an outpatient clinic. And what we do, that's kind of the thing that we do. And the Lord has never blessed anything else. There's all kinds of important things to do. And in some ways, you cannot really understand our little church if you don't see it as part of the church of Jesus in the city. Uh, and so people will send people, and, and they come, and, and uh, we love on them and help them. And as the Lord heals them, then they go back. Who wants to be in a little Anglican church without great music? Now, if we had this kind of music, Anglican could get, you know, I mean. Um, but uh, but, but the people come for it. And, and that's just what, it, that's the one thing Jesus has anointed. And so at a certain point, you realize, okay, I misunderstood what I was supposed to do. Uh, you know, because you think, I must be doing something wrong because when we do this try, we try this, all these other things that are good things to do that are part of the big picture, none of those things, uh, but that one thing. Um, and uh, so we've embraced who we are and what we do. And, uh, you know, frankly, just got quite comfortable with that. And, uh, and then uh, when you know the Lord, you start to change things. Uh, so anyway, but, uh, but the metric is, uh, in one of the places, and I've got my phone, because again, because I don't have my Bible, I can't just, so i got all these pages, so I just want to go real quick. So uh, in uh, Matthew 11, if you have your Bibles, let me get to that real quick. I'm reading out of the New Living, although I, if there's something that you guys read out of that's consistent, I'm glad to use any. New Living, uh, starting in verse 2. Um, I'll just give you a second. I'll let's record it, so that's good. John the Baptist, who was in prison, heard about all these things that the Messiah was doing. So he sent his disciples to ask Jesus, are you the Messiah we've been expecting, or should we keep looking for someone else? Now, John the Baptist, you know, Jesus says he's the greatest. Now, he's the greatest by proximity. I mean, he was the greatest because he was the closest. Okay, so he says the least in the kingdom is even greater, but but he was greatest by proximity and the fact that it was uh, he was called in a special way to forerun to be the forerunner uh, for Jesus, and he's just an absolutely phenomenal person. And of course, John the Baptist, uh, uh, you know, he could see he had all these prophecies like uh, uh, Isaiah sixty one and others, uh, which had this promise of this salvation, this healing, but also the judgment. And so John the Baptist is, of course, in Herod's prison. He's getting ready to die. He doesn't know it, uh, but he's getting ready to die. And, uh, but he's saying, hey, if you're the right one, I mean, there's all this love stuff and everything else, but where's the fire from heaven? Where's, the, you know, where's all that part? Uh, because all these verses and things, they also have the judgment. What John the Baptist doesn't re- didn't realize is that, of course, in the first coming, Jesus gives grace and in this incredible opportunity with his costly love and sacrifice. But in the second coming, all the other parts. So Jesus quotes back to John in other places. Uh, he'll take a passage, and if you notice, like when he quotes Isaiah 61, he never gets to the part which says the ju- right. judgment. Not because judgment isn't coming, but that wasn't his present mission. Okay. So John the Baptist is concerned. He's not a, a coward. He's, uh, I don't think he's afraid to die. It just it didn't make sense because he saw the scriptures and the the, an unction or anointing of the Holy Spirit was on him, and so he saw it just like it's together. Some of, well, you guys are near the Rockies, so you know uh, how it is when you see the Rockies. Or I remember as a child coming uh, across the states and going to the Rockies, and they all looked like they were all together, and, and you know, you're going to get there. And I remember getting to the first one, and then the next mountain was miles away. You know, so, but in the prophetic, you just see the whole range. But as time, you go up, and it's, 
you know, anyway. So, so but John the Baptist couldn't see that. And, and uh, so, but then Jesus also, he, he, he gives the metric here. And this is, this is the metric. And he says, oh, my phone went out, sorry. Jesus told them, go back to John and tell them what you have seen or heard and seen. The blind see, the lame walk, those with leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised to life, and the good news is being preached to the poor. Uh, and he added, God blesses those who don't fall away because of me. So why would, with all those things happening, why would people fall away? I mean, Jesus is saying, first of all, the metric is, is the presence and the anointing of the Holy Spirit. Number one, that's the metric. Uh, it's not the numbers, it's the metric, uh, is the presence. All right? N- number one, that, that's really important. It's really, really important to know. But, but why would people fall away? Because people forget that we have an enemy. We don't like to think about the fact that we have an enemy. Uh, you know, it's not fashionable. I mean, this church, I'm sure, it's no big deal to say there's a devil and all that. But it's not fashionable. People don't like to, you know, the, the media, all these people sort of made clowns of believers. And so people are afraid knowing that if they say, say that, that people are going to put them in a box that they're not in. You know, it's, it's a tough, it's a very tough time in, in that sense. But we have a devil, a real devil. There's an enemy. And so uh, the key is hope faith and love. Hope is the story that we believe. So the greatest is love, but you can't get to love without hope. That's why it's not just love. Okay, so the greatest is hope, faith, and love. Hope is the story you believe, and the story you believe, as Stephen was talking about, is connected to the return of Christ and this great thing that's going to happen, this great victory that's going to happen in the future. And if that story isn't in the forefront, then we cannot interpret the difficult and painful times that are going on right now. Because you have to understand. So if you try to make sense of your own suffering and pain in itself, in isolation, why did I get abused? Why did this happen? This is so unfair, all this. And it is. If you understand, if you try to find and make sense of your own life, apart from God's story, you, you, you will, it'll collapse you. Wow, right. Okay? So the glory to be revealed is that we understand ourselves and this thing that's going on as part of this much greater story. We're wonderful and holy people suffered and where terrible things happen. I mean, Hebrews tells the very best ones were cut into pieces. And all the people in the faith chapter, they never got what God promised. I mean, they did, but not in their life. It's like they were given a grace to long for promises that were beyond the span of their lifetime, but not their life. I mean, their, their eternal life, not. But so, so there's this conundrum that the greatest people, really died looking like losers in many ways. Yeah. And, if so, if you, and if so, if hope, if the story, the big story of Jesus and the ultimate return, if that's not in the forefront, then people fall away. Yeah. All right? Now, if you have the story, then you're given the choice to live by faith every day because you understand the story. So even though things don't make sense, even though it's unfair, it's, it's wrong, it's uh, all kinds of things, with all those things... If you have your hope in play, then you can operate by faith. Well, you're focusing what God has said and what God has promised, and therefore you can operate contrary to every one of our natural senses, our feelings about how we would operate otherwise if we didn't know God. So that's how faith comes in. And then love is the fruit that comes from those who have been trained by choosing to walk by faith according to God's purposes. And story. That's the first sermon. That's why I said she's gonna kill me. Okay, I know she's like, now sit down. <laughs> I'm not gonna sit down quite yet, dears. <laughs> I know. Okay. Now, the second sermon. I want to take you, and I want to just reflect on two quick points. Back to the story of Joseph, and you, you know you have to go back to 2019. I hope it's someone you can look at it. But anyway, uh, I want you to turn with me to Genesis 37. Genesis 37, we go back to the part of the story where the brothers are lying about Joseph and they bring uh, the blood on the uh, coat of many colors and they tell Jacob uh, that he's dead. 
and something very surprising happens, uh, and uh, something very strange happens in terms of Jacob's response. Uh, so here we go. Um, uh, we'll go to, since I just told you that, we'll look at verse 34. After, like, so Jacob tore his garments and put in sackcloth on his loins and wore for his son many days. And all his sons and his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol, I'll go down to death, to my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Um, and while that was happening, we find out that Joseph is being sold to Potiphar. Okay, so Jacob refuses to be comforted. All right? And this is a big problem. It's not healthy to not experience comfort. The reason that Jacob did not, as best we can tell, that he refused to be comforted is he believed in the resurrection. In a sense, he could not, well, let's say this, he could not come to grips, even of seeing the evidence, which appeared to be completely obvious, he could not come to grips or believe that it was true that Joseph had really died. And because he refused to believe that, though he mourned, he could not be comforted. So he refused comfort. And it was his statement internally, okay, against what he saw with his eyes that did not go with his gut and his heart. Okay? So he refuses to be comforted. Now, what do you think, though, happens to a person that refuses to be comforted? Hope deferred does what? Yeah, all right. So there's a lot of stuff builds up, and we break down and refuse to be comforted. Okay? Now we know, of course, the resurrection. We know God's the God of the living, not the dead. We, we, we have all the. But there is a sense in which Jacob did the right thing in the sense that his, his heart and his mind refused to give in to what he saw and uh, are the appearances. And, uh, and so he refuses comfort. All right? So there's got to be some way for God uh, to comfort us in these places um, where we're standing against. But we've got to find it or we'll be destroyed. And that's not the right road either. All right? The, the, the final thing I want to remind you of, which I said in the, uh, 2019, although I, I have not listened to it at all. <laughs> I can't stand listening to myself by 10 minutes, just my voice and everything. Uh, it's so weird. Uh, but in, uh, in chapter 50, and I'm not going to give you the verse because I'm just, uh, I, I, again, I have a sermon I'm going to get to. Uh, but in Genesis chapter 50, uh, when the brothers come to repent, he says, uh, you know, they don't really believe that he's going to forgive them. Uh, and particularly not when their father dies. So once the father dies, they're you know, getting close to death. They're sending, you know, uh, trying to get a deal so he makes a covenant or promises something so that, you know, he's being nice, but, but what's going to happen when Jacob dies? Then he's going to kill them all. That's the sort of idea. And so they're very concerned. And so they come and they, they repent. And, uh, and Joseph forgives them. This is really crucial. Joseph forgives them after all that. After all that, Joseph forgives. And the house is restored. But he says this powerful thing. He said, you meant it for evil. I mean, God didn't send it. God used it. God didn't send it. You meant it for evil. But God intended it or meant it for good. Meaning God was able to take the evil. As the theologians say, God handles sin sinlessly. He can take the most horrible evil things and by his grace and power, turn around to be a blessing. And he says, for the salvation of many. Hallelujah. For the salvation of many. Yes. And uh, it's probably time to start. I think that there's been lots of forgiveness, but I think, do you know that we forgive people before they seek forgiveness? Right on. Yes. 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 And forgiveness releases. Um, that's what forgiveness means to release. So um, anyway, so that's, the, that's that part. Now, then I want to tell you a quick story, and then I'm going to preach if that scares you to death. Um, like I said, Sue's going to kill me, but I just feel like it's on tape, and I, and I think some of, these things, some of these things need to be going back to. I'm just giving you the little, just so you have a bullet point to be thinking about, and I think the Holy Spirit's going to. So I was um, recently, I say recently, in the last six months, I was asked to intercede for a very famous healing ministry that was in a very that is in a very big transition where one of the leaders uh, died, 
and uh, uh, 94, 96 or something. So it's not something that you know, didn't sneak up on anybody or something, but, but uh, it was a big shift. And uh, that person was an incredible intercessor, and yet they have incredible intercessors in their ministry. I mean, matter of fact, I would say some of the very best. I mean, you're just like, wow, if anyone uh, knows how to do all this, they do. Uh, and yet there was certain things missing, and so they sought out uh, various people uh, to come and to pray to sort of sort this out. Um, and one of the manifestations of what was happening uh, was the, the leader that remained was experiencing uh, dizziness, uh, heart palpitations going very fast, uh, and uh, all kinds of other things uh, connected to uh, whatever the right words are, the doctors in the house, whatever the right words are for that condition. Um, and so, um, anyway, so I was asked to go and to pray, and I went and prayed, and uh, part of it, uh, this is a semi-private recording, though, right? Part of it, they, have, they experience a lot of occultic activity directed against them. And what a lot of people don't know, and one thing that they teach exorcists, is that there is a time, and maybe Pentecostals know it too, there is a time in which you must, uh, when people have ongoing witchcraft, you have to send it back with a blessing. Yeah, that's right. Okay, because they won't stop. So sometimes you have a child, uh, some, our children, when I was doing lots of exorcism early in the early days, before we had a lot more intercessors, our children would get attacked while I would be praying uh, someplace, either it was in my house or, or at the church. We didn't have a church for a long time, so often I had to be at the house, and my children would get attacked by the demonic. Uh, and there, we couldn't get it to stop. I mean, you can break it for the moment, but it, just, it would just keep coming. And so uh, finally I was uh, instructed by a wise uh, person to tell, uh, by the way, exorcist just, exorcism comes from the Greek word exousia. It just means to take authority over. All right, so it's not a. So there are people who are appointed to do that, you know. But it's not any. It's no better than deliverance. I mean, it's just it's, just, it's a it's a way of describing uh, those who are gifted are called uh, uh, to do that. Um, so in any case, I learned to send those things back. Uh, in fact, I learned that from the person who died in this ministry. Uh, but I learned that in the '90s. And it seemed to me as I was praying to go and to minister to their staff and prayer people that that's what was needed. Uh, and so after we had a communion service and a worship service and we laid hands on 100-something uh, prayer people, etc., I said, okay, this is what I want to do. And I explained it, um, and uh, we did it. And the other leader said, wow, I don't see things like that. But they said, wow, did that shift things when we sent back these things, uh, the cultic things, and I was sort of specific according to what God led me to say. Uh, so when I did that, there was a wonderful shift, uh, and uh, it was pretty neat, all right? So then I'm in August, I am going to Italy on a pilgrimage that we had paid for back in like 2018 or 19, and then things came up, and then COVID, and so, you know, it came up, and so we were going to see uh, the places where St. Francis and St. Clair were. And the neat thing about going to holy places is that when you have places where people pray for 800 years, you can feel the Holy Spirit just like you feel this morning in worship. You walk into old buildings and places, and it's like uh, people won that place for the Lord. And you, so, so we go on vacations. They call them thin spots. Mostly we go to Ireland or Scotland places, and we have a friend who leads the things. And I mean, it's the most Holy Spirit, fantastic vacation you could imagine. Uh, but this time we went to Assisi. But while I was in Assisi, I started getting heart palpitations and all kinds of problems. Now, I would not exactly have known what was going on, uh, except for I got an Apple Watch. So my Apple Watch started going crazy and telling me. So I mean, I didn't, I'm like, oh my goodness, my heart rate is up, you know, 125, whatever, and it won't stop even after I sat down for 10 or 15 minutes or more. And now, the other thing, but if you're going to go on a vacation, even a holy vacation, don't take your doctor with you. You know? Uh, she's looking at me like, you really shouldn't be eating pasta. I'm in Italy. I'm eating some pasta. You know what I mean? Uh, so uh, I have this wonderful believing doctor, and she is, I mean, it takes far better care of me than I deserve. But anyway, but, but my doctor was with me, et cetera. And they were quite concerned that I was, getting, I was getting ready to have a sinus surgery when I got back, and she was concerned that I probably had a major blockage or something uh, seriously wrong based upon all the different things that I was experiencing in Italy. So I had to come back. I mean, I come back, and I, my surgery for my sinuses was maybe 
five days or eight days, and so they took me and gave me an AKG, an echo, and then they did a stress test. And as it turns out, everything was okay. But while I was praying, I got nowhere. Couldn't get it to stop. Couldn't even get it to slow down, which I thought was very strange. Not, uh, I mean, not everything's the devil, but, but uh, even physical things. I've got power over. So it was very strange. Then the thought came to me, this is not dissimilar from the leader that I've been praying for. And so I started praying rather than for what was happening to me. I thought, this may not be mine. So I started praying, connected to the person of whom I intercede for. And when I did that, it started to stop. And then when it come back, it became the canary in the coal mine thing. And I would pray. And so every time it started coming back, I started praying for that person and that ministry, uh, and it stopped. Um, it may come back more, but I, I assume if it comes back, it's telling me something. But I had to ask the question, is this my heart problem, or is it there to tell me about something else? Now, I say all this because the other person, to put the circle back, the other person who was an incredibly anointed leader who's remaining after the other person died, has experienced incredible grief and not been able to process their grief at the loss of the other leader. And that grief, my instinct is, is part of um, why this is expressing itself the way it is physically in that person's body. All right, That's as discreet as I can be to say what I want to say for the tape or the whatever. Okay? We're, we're getting again. Okay? There's my thought for you and for you and for you. Okay. How much time have I spent already? We have lots of time. All right. Ruth chapter 1. I want say, Just say, and in closing. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm a liar. I said, this is my last point. I lie all the time. I mean, uh, I would love to tell you that you can count on me, but you can't. So, um, so two weeks ago on a Thursday, I was praying for a prayer, we have our healing prayer service on a Thursday night. We soak for an hour, God's presence, just sort of receiving and, and just hearing God's love and is just sort of being a sponge and letting, you know, so much of prayer is telling God. Yep. In soaking, it's letting God say to us. Yep. And so often, you know, I used to get mad. I was like, I want a prophetic word, like all these prophetic people. And, and, and he was just most of the time quiet with me. He didn't say much. And then a couple of, you know, couple weeks he might say something and I'm like ah, ah. and then one day he told me he said uh, Ron he said you get excited when I speak to you like a prophetic word he said what I'm excited about is spending time with you I like just being with you because you give me that space as I'm getting older I can enjoy just holding hands with Susie not very often but just just <laughs> There's something about that that, I mean, it's, and it was like the Lord's like, Ron, you have an agenda. You think something happened because I said something, but really, that, that this is a time with me uh, is the most important thing. Very good. And uh, so he said to me two things. He told me heel toe, and I mean, there was a guy who was a jazz drummer, and heel toe was some kind of drumming thing. And God touched that guy, and there was, but I didn't, no one came forward that night. Then I started getting the text the next day or later telling me all, I'm like, if you had said that, probably 20 more people got healed. But anyway, uh, there was people who got healed of a tree had fallen, four broken bones, uh, walked out of the thing. He, didn't, he wouldn't come forward, didn't say anything. But when he walked up to leave, God had healed his four broken bones. He had x-rays, all stuff. And, uh, you know, anyway, we're Anglicans, so t- teaching people you need to respond, not just for yourself, but for others, um, y- you know, anyway. But the word that the Lord really spoke was bitterness, all right, bitterness. And I want to talk about bitterness. Now, the first, bitterness is connected to all this grief and anguish that we go through. And, 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 and you know, anger, if it is not resolved, it ferments into bitterness. So you don't ever have to try to be bitter. Okay, bitterness it just happens if you don't know how to resolve your anger. And often we are overmatched with our anger. It's not that we want to be angry, we don't want to forgive. There's just things that are complex and nuanced because let's say they're happening every day uh, in a marriage or something. Susie, I mean, she can tell you all about this. I mean, she's had to learn how to forgive me and forgive me and forgive me. I mean, it's not easy. 
uh, in those contexts. Uh, and there's uh, people, we've got to forgive the government, the insurance company, and where we work at. And if it does not become a, harbit, a habit of the heart to do this, things back up uh, and we become bitter. And, and that's what I thought Hebrews 12 was about, but it isn't actually. Uh, but then the Lord said bitterness, and he said Mara. Okay, so I said, okay. So the bitter way. Uh, Mara means just bitter, but in Hebrew, but, but he was speaking to me then specific bitterness. So there's unresolved anger. There's the bitter way when, when the bitterness is just, things have been so hard. Okay, so that's what I'm talking about today. And then there's the bitterness that comes out of Deuteronomy chapter 29, and that's when people lower their guard after years of being faithful and they compromise with what they're watching on TV, this is my application, at least, you know, all kinds of ways they compromise in areas where which they would have been strict in the past, and they open themselves up to what, what the Bible calls the bitter root that defiles many. All right? And so spiritually, people, and he says what happens is, people say in their heart, I can get away with this. It's okay, we're all here, we're all worshiping and all that, but I can get away with the fact that I'm doing these things privately, whatever, and, and the Bible says not only does it bring destruction to the person, it brings, brings destruction to their family, uh, and it would be to their tribe or their church, all kinds. I mean, it's got bigger levels than that. So that's a real big one. I appreciate it. But that's not the one for you guys. The one, yeah, I know, I know, yeah, I know, I know. And I'm calling them out next. Yeah, no. no, I'm not just, okay. But, root chapter one. Here we go. So, you know, uh, well, Bethlehem, of course, means house of bread, okay? And so Naomi means pleasant, okay? Mara means bitter, bitter. okay? So uh, in the days when the judges ruled, now, in the days the judges ruled, not unlike today, where it doesn't really matter what the rules are. People do politically, leaders, judges, all kinds of stuff. People do what they want to do. That 20 years, they would never have been able to do. Something's happening uh, as sin is abounding, uh, where, where there is a type of anarchy and things and a conscience and things that are, and, and it's just part of the seas we're in. And we know the story of hope. We know, we know this is part of the things that happen. Yeah. Now, everyone's sure it's the end times. Well, it's always been the end times. So it, it well may be very short, but, but let me tell you something. If it isn't, these things will happen Things will get better. This will happen. I mean, this could go on for a very long time, like 1,000 years more, because this is the story of all history. So it may be the very end. Uh, we're supposed to live like it is in terms of our seriousness of taking things. But, but I want you to know, you could go back and you could see in 40-year cycles these kinds of things happening all over the earth since as all of history. This is, these are not new things. There have been many antichrists. Okay. Uh, and not all of them are called Antichrist, but there have been many, and then there will be. Okay, there's going to be one who's going to be preeminent, but anyway, so these are cycles. All right. So, in the days when the judges ruled the land, there was a famine. Why is the famine? Famine comes, Jeremiah 29 says, because people compromise and they turn to idolatry. And because they compromise and betray their covenant with God, God sends climate judgment upon nations. Did you know that? Okay, there we go. Then, well done. <laughs> They're familiar. And a man in Bethlehem, the house of bread in Judah, went to sojourn to take a temporary alien status in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. Now, Moab has this horrible history, and I want to say Genesis 19, but I'm not sure that's where it is. Maybe it's 20. I think there's a 9 in it. But that's where you have this horrible story where Lot's daughters realize that after Sodom and Gomorrah, they're not going to get married, and they get uh, a lot drunk uh, on successive evenings, and they have children by him, and that's where one of them is where you get the Moabites, the others where you get the Amorites, two of the very worst enemies of the Jews of all of history. A, a constant plague. And the Moabites lived across the Jordan in uh, what would be called uh, Jordan today, the country of Jordan today. Um, okay, so he went there because it was so bad in Bethlehem that in idolatrous nations, they were not being judged. Why would Moab not being judged as bad as Israel or Judah? Why? Because God expects more for those who have his truth. That's right. He judged the Jews. The Jews were better than everyone else when he judged them. It's just that compared to what they knew, okay, too much is given, much is required. So he could go to Moab, a country full of idolatry, and 
potentially make it better than the very house of bread, the place, uh, and the land of the people of the Messiah. The name of the man was Elimelech. Now, don't trust me on pronunciations of anything, um, but I'm going to just mumble that, Elimelech, and just hope that it's close. And the name of his wife, Naomi. I'm pretty good on that one. And the names of his two sons were Milan and Chilion. Yeah, I mean. And they were Ephrathites from Benjamin in Judah. They went to the country of Moab and remained there because they were starving. Now, can you imagine the, the thing about the... Just think about how, when's the last time you guys moved and how much it took a while to pray to get on the same page. All right? Yeah, well, we need a downsize, but we, the market's at the right place. The market's not the right place, but the job is good. I mean, all these factors that get stirred up. Okay? Now, people can get to unity, and presumably they did, but you can, we all second-guess these kind of major life things, and so you can only imagine all the doubts with also the urgency that they felt they should go. All right. So um, so they went to the country of Moab, remained there, three. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. I mean, this is, this is rough. Um, these took Moabite wives. Now, this is not how things are supposed to go. Uh, but they were so bad, they were probably so broke there that they didn't have the wherewithal to get back. So, you know, it's a mess. And so now they take wives. And you can imagine how conflicted all that was. Uh, the one of them was named Orpha, and the name of the other Ruth. They lived there about 10 years, and both Milan and Chilion, however you say that, sorry, died, so the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Can you imagine the grief? I mean, of course, in that day, your sons are your social security. I mean, it's your spirituality. It's your legacy. It's the idea of your family. I mean, it's not just what she was going through at the immediate loss uh, people lived with a very conscious of what it meant to be part of the generations of the faithful of God and to realize that there's going to be no inheritors. There's going to be, I mean, it's massive, the kind of a grief, uh, of course, that she's feeling. So then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return to the country of Moab, for she heard that the fields, of, she heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. He'd sent some rain, and so now there was some food. So they're going to go back. So she sent, she's going to go back. So she sent out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law and the way, on the way to return um, to the land now, of Judah. Now, she doesn't want the daughters-in-law to go. They're Moabites, and they've been good to her, and she's grateful to them. But, of course, they really belong there, and there's no way for her to have a child for a Leverite marriage to, to work this thing out. So there's, there's no way. There's not enough time for them to in any way be able to have an inheritance and a future for themselves. Even though they love her and they want to take care of her, it's not right. And so she recognizes that. And she says, you can't, et cetera. Some of you, I hope you know the story. But, but eventually, uh, Orpha, who not, did not betray her in any way, hurt her, and she did what was the right thing to do. It's just that Ruth was crazy. <laughs> Ruth was crazy. God put it in her heart. She says, your people are my people. Your God is my God. She made the most crazy, foolish choice you could make. But the Holy Spirit revealed to her heart uh, a love for Naomi that she would not She wouldn't leave her. So, all this to say, she gets back to Bethlehem. Let's jump down so we can get done sometime today. All the way down. See, my wife, she just chuckled gladly. She's she's like, now you're listening to the Lord. Now we're listening. Yes. All right. Yes. Verse 19. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. Now, when they came to Bethlehem, of course, there's all the old friends. These are people whose families live there, right? Okay. The whole town was stirred because of them. I mean, someone's made it home. But, of course, the story is, of course, not only has someone made it home, but that Elimelech and the two sons, the story of them and their deaths, 
So, you know, people would have met him in the fields, and then people would have run ahead, and so the story would have passed to the whole village. I mean, Bethlehem is not a very big place today, but it was a very small place, so everybody would have known, uh, and they're all coming out, of course, uh, to greet her. And the woman said, is this Naomi? And uh, she had a good reputation. They loved her. So this is a, a form of greeting, like, ah, is this Naomi? We got you back. Um, and uh, she said to them, this is what Naomi says, though, this wonderful woman. She says, do not call me Naomi or pleasant. Call me Mara, bitter. Now, this is the heartbreak. She says, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? When the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me. Can you imagine the heartache of what uh, she went through? But to believe that somehow, though she didn't know exactly how, Somehow, God himself had testified in a sense that he hated her rather than loved her. So there's a few reflections we want to make on that. Here we go. Let me get to my reflections. All right. The first mistake that Naomi made is that she identified with the bitter way. Now, it's almost impossible not to get, not get confused when life has been rough and difficult and we've got major losses and financial reversals and all kinds of things, particularly for people of faith, right? It's easy to think, what did we do wrong? And the devil wants to remind you what you did wrong. Now, some of those things aren't even wrong, but we're not sure. Uh, and uh, we second guess. If you ask the wrong question, you will always get the wrong answer. So if you start trying to ask in your life and in your pain, what did you do wrong? You'll never get out of that loop. Because you will always have done things that you could at least have done better. All right, part of what it means, no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus, it means we are free to fail and God will graciously forgive us as we grow and learn how to follow Jesus more faithfully. If I look back, I mean, there's just, I mean, besides, you know, other, I mean, I've just learned so much in the last five years or two years or 10 years or whatever. So, so we're always, and that's how it's supposed to be. And so people in the family of God, God isn't sending lightning and causing all these calamities. No, he, he's saying that's not what it is. If that's what it is, you'd be bug zapped and you'd be gone. Amen. Yeah, I would be gone. If God's judging all the mistakes you made, that'd be it. Yeah. All the wrath, all the condemnation, all the punishment was placed upon Jesus Christ. And you're free to fail as you, with integrity, follow God and learn. And when you see that you're wrong, you repent. And when you see you need to forgive, you forgive. And when you see you need more, you beg for more. And that's the kind of people you are. So you can't let the devil tell you on the bad days, you know, what did you do wrong? Because there's plenty. There's times I thought, I was doing really well. And the Lord showed me my heart was hard for like a decade. And I think, but you use me. He said, oh, I'm not allowed to use you unless you're perfect? <laughs> but I hate to say it. I mean, Susie was complaining, the early marriage particularly, and I'm thinking, hey, God's using me. And looking back, it wasn't that much. But nonetheless, I was like, so if he's using me, I must be right and you must be wrong. I never imagined. I mean, I, how ridiculous. But that's what my 20s looked like. It wasn't pleasant for her. She, that's where she learned to pray. That's what she learned to pray. She prayed the Holy Spirit into our lives, and she didn't know that's what she was asking for. Looking back, that's what happened. That's how God delivered us, but we didn't know. We were wonderful Baptists. Well, I say there's sweet Baptists and mean Baptists. We were the mean ones, but that's another story for another day. So you cannot, if you identify with your pain, we have been victimized perhaps, but we're not victims. Okay? We've lied, but we're not liars. Okay? Um, we've been foolish, but we're not fools. 
lots of things that happen. So there are facts. The facts are we're imperfect. And so there's all kinds of facts. But the truth is, is who we are in God. And the truth always swallows up the facts with God's grace and restoration, his forgiveness and his power and his transformation. I mean, that's what grace does. We are never, judgment reduces you to your worst things and your worst day and says, this is who you are. And that's what the enemy wants you to do, whether it's cancer, whether it's a bad marriage decision, whatever it is that he, he wants to, and sometimes we do things we know we shouldn't have done. And so even after we've repented a million times, we're sure that when things go bad, God's punishing us. And he's like, that's not how it works. It's not how it works. Do not make the choice to call yourself by your circumstances. Now, this is also very hard when other people call you by your circumstances. So shame is the sense of being defective. Reproach is when a community put upon you, okay, like Job's friends, like this is not just horrible, but it's your fault. So when the, when the corporate family at various levels says, it's you, you're defective, that's reproach. So that's a, it's a type of shame, but it's a corporate one, and it's got to be broken off people. It's a, it's a horrible thing. Okay, And people can identify with the fact. I mean, I was talking to someone at a conference down right by Port, Vancouver, Washington, uh, this week, and she, and, and she said, but, but all these people say, and, and yet what she had done was honorable. But people didn't like it. Her family didn't like it. But what she did, it was a godly thing. But it feels like if there's a bunch of people who think it even can shake us even when we know that we haven't acted wrong. All right? And so it's hard. The devil, and that's the devil. Now, how can we make sense of that? Well, look at Jesus' story. Jesus is the way. What happened to Jesus? What happened to his disciples? What happened to all the people in the Bible who loved him? Because you think, surely... How could all this happen if it's not me? Well, it's always us at a level again, but, but no. Be, all the people who love God, because of Jesus' story, the enemy comes, and these things happen. And the very best got the worst. The very best. Naomi thinks it's all about God and his judgment on her. She doesn't. It's all about God because it's God's story. And she's getting ready to inherit through Ruth a child who will be the grandfather of David and will be in the messianic line. It's actually in this story, she's being called in by faith just to tread water when nothing makes sense and there's nothing to hold on to. Just to hold on in faith. I'm just going to tell you, and you can go back and look, but what happens in chapter 4 is, of course, Boaz, the kinsman redeemer, takes Ruth as a wife. Ruth has a child whose name is Obed. Obed means servant of Jehovah. But it actually, in this context, doesn't mean that. It means the one who serves, because Obed is given back. Ruth's heart is so precious that she gives her son her first son, to Naomi. And she nurses him. She, she raises him as her own inheritance. Let me read this to you. So we talked about you know, what reproaches the corporate sense. What's beautiful is the people in the village did not seem to put any of that on Naomi, though Naomi felt it. And when things shift, 
they cheer her on. They call her back to her true self. That's very unusual. Most people, people are down, like, oh, you know, kick them, kick you in the teeth. You find people stand with you in bad times, you've got some people. What a church this is. Okay, look here. Ruth 4, 11. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah. Also people who are foreigners. They're saying, we accept Ruth and we want to bless her as one of our own. They could have said, I don't know about these Moabites. You know their history. They got bad people. They got, you know, this isn't, they got all kinds of reasons. You know how people are. Okay? Instead, they said, let her be like, they remember good stories of foreigners coming in, and they said, let them be like that. Okay, so they bless, and part of their blessing is part of how all this whole thing comes together. If they hadn't blessed, it all wouldn't have happened. Who together built, like Rachel and Leah, who together built the house of Israel, may you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned I mean, let your name be big. They're asking for a promotion above themselves. Be renowned in Bethlehem and make your house be like the house of Perez, who Tamar bore in Judah when things didn't go right, but it wasn't really her fault. And God ended up turning it all around. Because the offspring of the Lord will give you by this young woman. Meaning, let your whole story be transformed. And it was that faith that's part of this whole salvation story that brings us a Messiah. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception. We always have a part to play in obedience. But without God's divine intervention, it still doesn't happen. But that's the beauty. He doesn't need us, but he wants us to play our part. We're the loaves and fishes. He always wants some of the loaves and fishes. Of course, he'll bless them, and he'll multiply them into a feast. But we don't have to be the caterers. There's no pressure on us. Just, we just, but we are expected to give our loaves and fishes. Here we are, Lord. Here's our prayer. Here's our obedience. Here's our service. Here's our money. We do our little part that we can. And he multiplies. Yeah. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. What they're saying is, so she needed a husband or a son to take care of her. What Ruth did was, she gave Obed into Naomi's house. Now I'm sure she was there, but, but he was given to serve and to take care of Naomi. And so she took him upon her breast or her bosom and she nursed him. Okay, it means that she raised him. Not, not breastfed him, but she, she raised him. Okay, she was given that. Ruth understood. And so Naomi's story is restored through the gift that happened in the heart of faith of Ruth. And a town that saw, here's who she really is. And they refused to misinterpret what appeared to be and let God win out. Naomi took the child, laid him upon her lap, and became his nurse. And the woman of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi, not Ruth, because he was given, see? A, no, a son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed, one who serves Yahweh or Jehovah. But the the scholars say in this context, it was the one who serves, meaning he was given to serve Naomi. That's the idea here. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Matthew 1, 1 to 6, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. The son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. And Isaac, the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. And Perez, the father of Hezron. 
Hezron, the father of Ram. And Ram, the father of and Abibah the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz, by Rahab. Another incredible story. And Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse. Jesse, the father of David. And then goes all the way down to verse 16. I thought you probably, for time's sake, I'm just jumping down. There's many more. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary of whom Jesus was born, who was called Christ. So what was going on in Naomi's story? Because she was part of the Messiah story, somehow the enemy saw it. And he was able to bring this horrible destruction. And yet God raised up a kinsman redeemer through a daughter-in-law from the wrong place, brought it all together, through that child, brought protection, joy, whatever, restoring Naomi, and then took their place in the line of the Messiah. But if you don't see the big story, you think, what a waste. What God is asking you to do is to never to interpret your lives outside of his story, to live in hope to understand the good days and to celebrate them as part of his story. But also to understand the bad days. Sure, we've done things wrong and we've contributed in certain ways, but that's not what's going on. That our, our sins may open us up to a certain way the enemy's attacking, but the enemy would attack us if you did nothing wrong. That we're part of this glorious story. And the glory to be revealed, the glorious, the, the idea is that you have like this treasure, but it's been, you open up and it can be seen. Okay, the glory to be revealed. Okay, it's it's like that, there's a day coming where our little story, I was in, uh, uh, no, I was in uh, Greece, and I saw this mosaic, and you know, they couldn't get on the the beautiful mosaics from the time of Christ. They had these mosaics, and, and, uh, but they couldn't get like a real clear white, all the white ones were like a smoky vanilla because that's the best they could do on the color. I mean, it's per- tremendous. I'm not trying to complain. But they couldn't. And, and so I saw myself. It's like the Lord gave me a picture of zooming in and seeing this little crummy, smoky piece. And he said, that's the problem. He said, right, if you, if you focus just on this one piece, it, it's pretty unimpressive. And it's not really that clear. And it's got a little smoke in it. And he's like, and then he zooms back. And I see this mosaic. He's like, if you understand you're part of my story, you're part of this beautiful thing, even though some really unbeautiful things have happened in your life. Yeah. Some very unfair things, some very tragic things. Some, but so, and if you try to make sense of that smoky piece of this mosaic, you'll never do it. But I'm inviting you to see the whole big thing and to interpret what happens to you within this glorious story and my plans for you. Because you have an enemy and he knows your name. But I know your name, and I'll keep you. Amen. Now, I'm actually done. <laughs> You'd be like, Whew. Now, what I'd like to do, um, you may have to dismiss because I went on too long. I don't know, but I, I would love to pray uh, whether the service is dismissed and over, however that works. I would love to pray for you in the midst of what you're going through. uh, That you would be refreshed and the Spirit would touch you in such a way to restore the joy of what it means that, ah, the Lord is not testing. You may not have thought that God's against us, He's testifying, but but in a sense, when you pray it off you, you'll feel how light you get. (laughs) And you realize, oh, in a certain way, I wondered if He was punishing me or if I brought this on myself, whatever. And and when that leaves, you're like, oh my goodness. Didn't realize I was even thinking that. But I would just love uh, to pray for anyone uh, and to ask God's refreshment and perspective. Uh, it's not that you don't know it. It's just there's times we need it to be enlarged and magnified. We, we know it well, but we need it another level in light of what we're going through. So, Lord Jesus, we love your people and we just love this church. Oh. <sighs>
how can we say enough about the people of uh, Bethlehem who saw what's going on and stood and cheered and called in by faith uh, the future and the restoration for Naomi. Uh, This is that kind of place, Lord. What a treasure. So I pray, Lord, as we turn to you, Lord, would you pour out your spirit here in a fresh way. I mean, your spirit's here so beautifully, but Lord, to those who have much more will be given. And we just pray. Lord, we pray that uh, through all these things that your name would be glorified uh, and that the things that have been longed for for 30 years, uh, Lord, we would open up at the right time by your spirit and all the hopes and longings and dreams for your gospel and for transformation and healing and freedom from addictions and restoration of family, all these things, Lord, that they would pour out in the most amazing and phenomenal way. And in the meantime, we thank you for your presence that you do not withhold from your people. And I thank you for the privilege to be here among such wonderful brothers and sisters. So bless them and strengthen them, Lord. Uh, Assure them uh, of your favor. Uh, And that uh, a lot of rough things are happening, but it's just because we're in your story. And you haven't not only not rejected us, you're really elevating us to play uh, such an important part, just like you did with Naomi and all the rest of them. So we glorify you. We praise you in the darkness when we don't get it, when we don't understand. We praise you for letting us be a part of your family. And we thank you, Lord. Uh, Though we don't understand it all yet, we know we will. So bless us now. Fill us. Uh, Continue, Lord. Uh, to lead us and guide us. We ask this in Jesus' wonderful and precious name. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.